Genesis chapter 30 and 50. Two verses tonight. There's only two places in the Bible. They're both in Genesis, and they're both said by members in the same family. And it's the question, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? We're going to look at them. I'm going to read just a couple verses around them. The first one is Genesis 30, verses 1 and 2. And the main character here is Rachel, although Jacob says the sentence that we're looking at. And it reads, Genesis 30, verse 1, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? That's the first one. Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And with that in mind, finger, keep your finger there because we'll be coming right back. Last chapter, Genesis 50, you might be more familiar with this one. And uh, this is Joseph, Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. Genesis 50, verse 19, but Joseph said that to them, meaning his brothers, do not fear, second use, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And it means he spoke to their heart. That's the Hebrew translation. When I was a young man, very young, I think maybe 10, I got sassy with my mom one day. I know that's hard to imagine. Um, and she turned and said to me, and I don't know that anyone says this anymore, but this is what she said to me. She said, young man, you better know your place. Now, that's probably antiquated. Um, to know your place, if you don't know it, here's what it says in the dictionary. It means you should know that there are boundaries that you can't overstep. Um, it's an, another statement today. In modern language, we'd say, you better stay in your lane. <laughs> you better not try to be what you're not. In this case, the parent. And uh, I have to realize, to know my place is I'm the kid and she was my mom. Um, babysitters. Imagine a babysitter that you hire comes over to your house and she's telling your kids what to do even when you are home. And you might want to tell your babysitter, hey, I'm glad you're watching our children, but you need to know your place because you're just a babysitter, right? Because there's a, can I say it? There's a hierarchy of authority, right? Parents are over the children. It doesn't say babysitters over the children, right? They may be for a time and watching over there for a few hours, but that's not their role, right? Um, this would be taking place at work or at your job sometimes. Have you ever had a coworker who, in the absence of the boss, thought it was their job and responsibility to tell you everything to do and that they knew everything and they were trying to always boss you around? They don't know their place, that there's a job. The bo it's boss and employee, right? Uh, worker, uh, not coworker, other coworker. That's not how it works because there's boundaries, there's authorities. A teenager who's trying to think they're relating to their parents may tell their parents when they're 16 what they think now they can say, this is what I will and won't do. 
but they don't realize that they are out of line, we say. Out of line, meaning there's a pecking order, there's a line. Parents, and you're still a teenager, and you're down here, right? So you better know your place in line of authority, and it's not over me, parents would say, I hope anyways, right? Um, it's, have, you ever had, have you ever had a conversation with someone, and they, you say to them, hey, how did your talk go with so-and-so? And then they tell you a little bit about it. And they say, well, you didn't tell them? You didn't tell them what we were talking about? And they say, no. And you say, why? And they say to you, well, I just didn't think it was my place to say that. In other words, when they said that they didn't think they had the relationship or they didn't have the right or the authority to say those kinds of things to that person. Um, you might have had this maybe sometimes when you you get married, you have your own kids, and you live in the same town as your parents and your grandparents. They, the kids' grandparents come over, and they're at the house, and everybody's there, and your kids are doing something, or they're gonna, they ask to go somewhere, do something. And instead of you saying, your grandparent, the grandparent, no, 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 I don't think you should be doing that. And you might pull your mom or dad aside and say, hey, mom or dad, I know you're trying to help, but I'm not sure it's your place to tell my kids all those things. That, that's kind of my job now. You might say that because they forget they're not, they're in charge of you. They used to be, but they're, they're not in charge of the grandchildren, right? Although I, I'm glad not to be in charge if I had grandchildren. But all those scenarios, right? Uh, um, all those scenarios, they presume a hierarchy of authority. Parents over babysitters, parents over teenagers, parents over their own children. Um, and, and, you get out of place. You don't know your place when you have stepped over those boundaries. And what you find is that that's a biblical concept. So impregnated in the little phrase, am I in the place of God, is that same concept that there is an authority and when it comes to our relationship with God, just like teenagers to their parents, uh, workers to their bosses, there's a hierarchy. God is this place and you're this place. He has this kind of authority and you have this kind of authority. And when you overstep your boundaries and you are in his lane, you are out of line, um, there's something that goes wrong. That happens in our lives. That happens in our lives when we face difficult problems, when we face situations that we deem often to be out of control. And here's the temptation is instead of trusting God, we begin to take his place. Thus the question, am I in the place of God? In other words, what you're asking me to do or what you think I'm going to do, I'd have to move into God's place to be willing or able to do that. And so what I want to do tonight in the minutes we have together is to tackle and unpack those two scenarios on both sides of the coin. And answer the question tonight, you answer the question in your heart. And when you handle certain circumstances and certain situations, when you are powerless or powerful, do you find yourself at times at least being tempted if not doing it? Or do you find yourself putting yourself in the place of God? So we're going to look at them one at a time. If you're not back in Genesis 30, please turn back to that because we're going to look at Rachel. Rachel is going to teach us to know your place when you are powerless. Let me describe her powerless situation. In chapter 29, leading up to the verses I read to you beginning in chapter 30, here's what it says. In verse 31, it says that when the Lord saw that Leah, or Leah was hated, 
he opened her womb. Rachel's was barren. So Rachel couldn't have children. Leah could have children. And it's, it's not just that simple. It goes on to say that she, couldn't, she not only could Leah have children, but she could have boy children. And it's not even that simple. It's not that she just had one and Rachel hadn't had one yet. She had four. She had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now, this is Rachel's external situation. This is her external circumstances. Let's keep that in mind because it's going to be important. On the outside, here's what the problem seems to be. And in her culture, believe it or not, and even today, there's a little bit of a stigma. At least people have that in their mind. She couldn't have children, and it was a huge deal. It was part of your identity as a woman in Israel's culture that you are part of the seed-producing, so to speak, uh, because the Messiah is coming, and every woman was told to be fruitful and multiply, and that was part of what your main part of what your job was, is to pre, you know, for the nation, the army, and everything else, that if you couldn't do that, especially you couldn't have a boy, um, you were... Let me tell you this, sometimes no children meant no value, no worth, no purpose, no meaning. Really, almost it could be taken that seriously. And it was a big deal. So she couldn't, not only could Rachel have no children, she couldn't have a boy. And if you ever read other stories, Sarah and Rebecca, the other patriarch's wives, they couldn't, they started out the same way. Hannah couldn't, and it drove her crazy. Okay, so it, it is a huge deal. And in and, and, and 29, look at verses 33, 34, 35. Imagine hearing this if you are Rachel. And it says, and Leah, listen to this, conceived again. And then it says, again. And then it says, again. Imagine a life of this. There's just words on our paper, but that's what she lived. Imagine, you can't have children. Leah has it. You watch her nine months. There she has. Not very long later, nine more months a second one, nine more, a third time, nine more. So this is years and years and years. Rachel watches, I can't have any children, and she keeps having them like it was easy. So this is four boys. It's like someone dunking the ball in your face as your basketball player four times. It's like losing the World Series to the same team four times in a row. It's like four Super Bowls back to back to back, and you get slammed every time. It's not just a repeat or a three-peat, it's a four-peat. I mean, that's how she feels. That's how she thinks she's treated. But that's Rachel's external circumstances. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 7 and Matthew 15? He says, you know what defiles a person? You know, in other words, you know what their real personal problems are? It's not what comes from the outside. What does he say? It's what comes from the inside. See, there's always deeper problems, a root problem that goes way below the surface. On the outside, Rachel seems to have her biggest problem that she can't have a baby, particularly a baby boy, but that isn't the real problem. Oh, it's a problem, but it's not the main one. Now look at Rachel's internal circumstances. Genesis 30 and verse 1 again. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, see it? She envied her sister. See, it's a rivalry. It's a contest. And it says she envied. It's the same word envy 
that is used in Genesis 37 in verse 11 that motivated Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. You know what it says? When they saw his coat of many colors and how his dad treated him, it says in Genesis 37, 11 that they've envied him. Do you know how powerful that internal problem is? It made brothers sell their own brother into slavery. It's the same word, although it's a Greek one. In Matthew's gospel, 27, 18, it was motivating to the religious leaders to have Jesus arrested and ultimately crucified. And Pilate knew it. It said Pilate knows that they delivered Jesus over because they were envious. Jesus was more popular. People loved him. He was great. And they didn't love and admire the religious leaders like that. And the inside problem, hear me, here's the principle. Out of control internal circumstances can produce out of control external circumstances. She was jealous. She was jealous. And she didn't deal with the inside problem, see? Rachel's issue was more than just wanting what her sister had. It was wanting inordinately what God had not given her. You see it? It wasn't just a problem between her and Leah. That was the expression of it. The downright root of the problem was is that God had said no and Rachel wasn't happy about it. And don't say that she didn't know that God said no because her mother-in-law and her, if if it's possible, her great mother-in-law, Rebecca and Sarah, all patriarchs, this is her husband's father and grandfather, their wives, I can't imagine that before they died, they didn't tell them the stories about how they were barren, couldn't have children, and had to wait on God. She knows the line. She knows. She knows the history. She doesn't like it. She doesn't want to live in that story. And so she's consumed with herself. She's consumed with making it different. How consumed? Well, those inner desires become what I term dangerous desires. That envy and that jealousy and that lack of satisfaction and God's sovereignty in her life, it's not a small thing. It begins to cause problems. It causes problems in her marriage between her and Jacob. She wants him to do what only God can do. You give me, in other words, as as Jacob could change anything, you give me children, she says in verse two, or I'll die. (laughs) You know what she has? Those, Those desires that started off small that she didn't get, now they are so big that they are completely out of proportion. They are completely driving her. And now she's angry with her husband. She's jealous of her sister. And she's breaking down relationships with people that she supposedly loves. Why? Because she's not happy. She's not getting what she wants. And if she doesn't get what she wants, she says, I might as well die. You know who else says that in scripture? Jonah. God didn't do what Jonah wanted him to do when it came to the Ninevites. And so Jonah said, if I don't get my way, I'm on my way out. So he sailed away. God caught up to him, to use human terms. Threw him overboard. And when God he gave the second chance, he still couldn't get over it. And after God spared the city, he says, God, you know what? I'm so angry, you might as well just kill me. Elijah was running from Jezebel after a huge victory on Mount Carmel, God catches up to him and says, what are you doing here? He goes, God, I'm no better than my forefathers. You might as well just take my life. Those are emotions that have taken over their lives 
because things didn't go the way that they thought they would. So ask yourself, how do you handle situations when you are powerless to change them? When you don't have any control over the outcome, put in your mind, just think with me, if there were two categories on a piece of paper, external and internal, when you want to find, and you're single, and you want to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and you can't, and months and years pass, and you still can't, the, the, and, and here's what happens. If you're not careful, on the inside, the internal category, outside you can't find someone that you could marry, or date even. So you get jealous. You begin to look at your friends. Oh, she got married. Oh, they're dating. Oh, and then you go on Facebook and you don't want to go on Facebook anymore because you're watching people find the people that you're not. So you get depressed and then you become anxious. I guess it's never going to happen for me. And you begin to forecast outrageous things about the future that you know nothing about. And I call it catastrophizing. Now you'll never be this way, right? Inside problems. On the outside, you want to be successful at your job. Not a bad thing. Just like not wanting to be married. That's not a bad thing. But on the inside, and you want to be promoted by your boss. You want to move up the ladder. You want to get a higher income. You want more influence and impact and position. Not bad or inherently evil in and of itself. But on the inside, you want it so bad that you're cut corners. Ethical corners. Moral corners on business trips when the boss wants to go out to the places I won't mention that you never should go to. And you do. Why? Because to get the promotion, you have to be one of the guys. Greed begins to step in. You're jealous of guys who get the promotion that you think you should. You become envious and you do more things, underhanded things, so that you can get ahead. If you're not careful, see, those dangerous desires begin to take over. You're going to school or you're going to high school or you're a college and you want to be popular. You want to be accepted. And you're a girl or even a guy. In order for that to happen, you can't really let it be known that you're a Christian and you can't be known that you actually listen or obey your parents and you certainly can't have certain convictions and beliefs about things so you let them go and no one really knows. And you're willing to even do wrong stuff to fit in. In your family, you're the only one who's a Christian in your family. So you're going to laugh at jokes and you'll watch certain movies on holidays when everyone's together. Why? Because you want to fit in. You want a boyfriend and girlfriend. In our day and age, if you really want one and you want any hope of getting married, then you can't be moral and you better be willing to live together. And perhaps the fact that you might even marry someone who's not a believer. Why? Because you really, really want it. See? So you bulldoze yourself into a relationship that you know you have no right being in. And you do it anyways. Why? Because what happened with Rachel has happened to you. Her want to became a have to. And she got out of her lane. And she took over the place of God. And so she begins to demand what no one can give her but God. And she wants it now. She's not waiting any longer. She's not going to be second place anymore. She's not going to have any zeros on the scoreboard any longer. She's decided to take control, and in this case, she does. And so since she can't have children, she's going to do what everybody else in the world does. She gets your handmaid, Bilhah, to come in, and you go, and she tells her husband, you go right here tonight, and you have relationships with her, and then I'll have a child through her. See, I'm not waiting on God. I'm not going to do the right thing. I'm compromising, because I'm not letting Leah have the advantage anymore in my life. 
So I take God's place, come up with my own concoction, my own way about how I'm going to handle it, and I go about it. Because you see, here's what Rachel's problem was. It wasn't that it was a difficult circumstance. It was a wrong response to a difficult circumstance. And that happened on the inside, not just on the outside. And in that moment, for Rachel and for some of us, maybe you've been there. In that moment, her happiness trumped her holiness. And what I want you to remember tonight is that in that moment, Human instrumentality took precedence over divine sovereignty. Let me say it again. Human instrumentality, people getting their way, their own way, took place over God's sovereignty, God doing what he wants his way. See? So Jacob says, you're going to get mad at me? Here's his famous line, the first use. Am I in the place of God, he says in verse 2? But Jacob's words and questions, they fall on deaf ears and deceived hearts. Watch this in the next few verses. How far can people go who are powerless to get what they want? How far will they go? How far will Christian people go? Here's how far they'll go. Plan A, God's sovereignty waiting for him to open her womb. Well, that hadn't worked in years. So plan A, scratch that because I'm 0 for 4 on that one, she says. Plan B is human instrumentality. I'll use my handmaid instead of waiting for God to step in and do what only he can do. And she does, and there's a baby happens. She has a baby, and his name is Dan, through her handmaid. One, zero, I'm on the board. She thinks that's great. So much so that she deceives herself. And here's what she says. Look at 30 and verse 6. Rachel said, God has judged me. That's what the word Dan, that's the name Dan. God has judged me. And he heard my voice and gave me a son. That wasn't God. At the end of the chapter in verse 22 through 24, you'll see when it's God. That isn't God. God's job, God's idea was one man, one woman for not life. Not when things get hard, invite another woman in to do what you can. That's not God's plan, but that was what she decided to do. You know why? Because she took his place. She got in the place of God. That's what we do sometimes. Have you ever seen people who want something so bad that they'll twist things and put God into it? I've heard people tell me (laughs) that they're going to get a new car. And here's what they say. I prayed and asked God, and if there was a car this make and this model and this color, when I get to the lot, I'll get... Now, they can't afford it. They can't afford the down payment, the payments. It's going to make them have financial difficulties. But they throw a verse in there. And they throw a concept of, I prayed to God and asked for these things. And they come, lo and behold, this is what it was. And I got this car. And six months later, they got to take it back. Why? Because they want to do what they want to do. And they want to put God's name on it. That's what Rachel does. That's how bad it can get. That's how strong your emotions can control you. Now, finally, in verse 7 of chapter 30, here's what it says of Bilhah. Or I should say Rachel through Bilhah. It says, and Bilhah conceived again. Oh, that's what Leah's been doing. Conceived again, conceived again. Now she's going like, oh, look at me. It's not really her. Conceive again. I'm getting what she had. And she, listen, she's winning on the outside. But you get, can you get this? She's still losing on the inside. See, the score is four to two. And she's still losing on the inside. You know why? Because she's still sitting in the place of God. And that's what people who have their desires control them. As long as the external changes, they begin to care less about the internal. 
about what God really thinks about what they're doing. And the Bible says that she comes out in verse 8. She's losing on the, winning on the outside, losing on the inside. And here's what she says. Verse 8, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Now, her husband, in a couple chapters, thinks that his greatest problem is wrestling with his brother Esau. And one night, he's sitting there waiting for Esau to cross the river, and he thinks he's going to attack him, and Esau's going to wrestle him for his life. And he thinks his biggest problem is, i got to wrestle Esau. You know, his wife isn't much better. She thinks that her greatest problem is getting one up on her sister and wrestling with her sister. But you know what the word wrestle in this passage means? It often is translated to trick someone into something. Sound familiar? She probably learned this from her husband. He's the number one trickster in the Old Testament. So here's what she thinks. I'm wrestling with my sister, and if I could just have my own child or have children by somebody else, you know, I've conquered. I've prevailed. I'm winning. And they spend their whole life wrestling the people that they should never be wrestling. You know what she really needed to do? She really needed to get on her knees and pray and wrestle with God. Her husband found that out the hard way where he wrestled with God all night and he put his hip out of socket and he limped for the rest of his life. You know why? Because Esau wasn't Jacob's problem. It was wrestling with God. See, Leah is not Rachel's problem. Not having children isn't Rachel's problem. It's wrestling with God about what he wants for her to further his story. See, that's the problem. Now, for Rachel's credit, it seems to be at the end of the chapter... If you look in verses 22 through 24, she finally figures it out. It says that she calls on God, and it says this. Now watch how many God phrases. God remembered Rachel, verse 22. God listened to her. In other words, she finally cried out to God and said, Hey, I know I've done Bilhah, but God, uh, this isn't going to be real until I have you in it. And God listened to her, and now he opens her womb. See, now God is the source. He's the power behind it. And what she's kind of saying, I think, is, hey, I've been powerless, and I've been trying to be powerful on my own. God, I'm stopping that. I'm asking you to be powerful for me. I want you to do what I cannot do. God, you get back in the place that you deserve in charge. She conceived and bore a son and said, well, God has taken away my approach. All along, she's been trying to take away her approach, doing it her way. And now she says, God, you're going to have to stand up for me. I want people to know that you're doing this in my, and she called the name Joseph. Watch, may the Lord add another son. So if I have this first son, and if you ever give me another one, I want people to know that the real children that I want to have have come from God. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there tonight already. Tired of wrestling the wrong people? Are you tired of wrestling, the, trying to get everybody to do what you want your way? Tired of winning on the outside, but still empty and losing on the inside? Are you tired of pretending and, and hoping that people will think that you're doing things a spiritual way while all inside you're just pretending because all you really want is your own way. And then when you do all that stuff, you know what you're doing? You're taking the place of God. So here's Rachel's story. She tells us, know your place when you are powerless. On the other side of the coin, coin turn to Genesis 50. Joseph is going to teach us, know your place when you are powerful. Now, there's a contrast between Rachel and Joseph in these two times that the phrase, am I in the place of God, is used. Rachel is powerless. Now watch, Joseph, when he says it ultimately in chapter 50, 
am I in the place of God? He's very powerful. There's no more powerful person in Egypt than him. But you know how he got the ability? You know how he got to the place where he could let God be in charge? It didn't happen when he was powerful. It happened when he was powerless. For 13 years, in chapter 37, verse 2, before he was sold into slavery, the Bible says Joseph was 17. And then it says in chapter 41 and verse 46, can you turn to 41 in Genesis? He now has been taken out and he has children. He's been elevated. And he has two children and his children have names. And I want to give you three examples of how Joseph was able to put in proper relation and perspective God's sovereignty and human instrumentality. Now notice, when he says these words in chapter 41, I looked up the chronology. He's 30 years old. So how long was he powerless? 13 years. So now he's powerful, but it wasn't always like that. For 13 years, he was powerless. Listen to this. Powerless when his brothers sold him into slavery powerless when he was bought by Potiphar, powerless when he was unjustly treated and thrown in the prison, powerless when he had to stay in that prison for two years. Thirteen years, he was powerless. He could not change his external circumstances. He finally gets out and he has two sons and as he looks back on what it was like to live at home with his dad and his brothers and what it was like the last 13 years, here's what he names his son. Chapter 41 and verse 52, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. And here's why, because this is what it means. For he said, watch, God-centered, God-sovereignty. God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. His distant past was all of his hardship. His dad, his brothers, all that way back 13 years ago. And he says, he, he says, all my father's house. So all the things that happened to me a long time ago and all the things that have happened to me in the last number of years, my child Manasseh is tribute to God that because I put God's sovereignty out in front and I know that God had a purpose. I didn't understand all the human instrumentality. I don't know at the time why he was using my brothers, why he put me in Potiphar's house. If all that was going to happen, I was going to end up in prison. I don't get it all, but I trust him. See, he learned when he was powerless and he didn't take God's place. Notice, though, people who believe in the sovereignty of God are not pacifists. He says, and he says literally, he doesn't deny that there was toil in all of that, and he doesn't deny the fact that God helped him in the land of his affliction. So he was hurt, he was suffering, he was in pain. They're emotional terms. He not only was hurt physically, not only did he lose his freedom, but it was emotional for him to know that his brothers could care less about him. That he had done everything for Potter, for, and Potiphar believed his wife. <laughs> he didn't get all that was happening, but here's what he got. That God was in a sovereign God. He was sovereign in e Israel when I was back home, and he's sovereign in Egypt. He was sovereign when I was in my dad's house, when I was sold by my brothers, when I was in Potiphar's house, when I was in the prison house, and when I was in Pharaoh's house. See, God is sovereign. He puts down and he raises up. He even gets comprehensive and says, all my brothers, all my bosses, all my house, all my, all my past, everything. See, that's his perspective. 
And having that perspective enabled him not to take the place of God. Second sovereignty passage, years beyond this. Now he's going back a number of other years. Five more years later, here's what he says in chapter 45. Turn there if you would. Genesis 45, 4. Now his brothers have come to Egypt. The other one was before they came to Egypt. Now they have come to Egypt. It's a famine. They need food. They don't know it's Joseph. You know the story. So Joseph says to his brothers, 45.4, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, now he's going to identify himself. I'm your brother, Joseph. Listen. See, he doesn't deny the fact whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh. He made me lord of his house and ruler of all this land. Put the slide up there, would you, Steve? There's a comparison I wanted you to see it between God's sovereignty and human instrumentality or responsibility. See where it says on the screen? I can't really read that as well. Here, that's better. God sent me before you. God sent me before you. He says it twice. But on the other side, look at that. You sold me. You see what he's saying? He's keeping him in tension. It's not that he doesn't believe in human instrumentality. He does. You sold me. But you know what trumps that? God sent me. You thought you were doing something bad. God was doing something good. Here's what he says. See, you, see, he can say it so strongly that you didn't send me. You really didn't have much of a say in it, although you think you had every part of the say. He said, you didn't send me. God did. In other words, you are secondary at best in this whole process. It was not you who sent me here. And then, see, when he's back in 41, God made me forget. God made me, he's going to talk about it again. God has made me father. See, God sent me here. God sent me to Pharaoh. He sent me to prison. God sent me all those bad places, quote unquote. But you know what? Now he sent me up here. God has made me a father. God has made me Lord. See, when God put me down here, he did it. When God put me up here, he did it. You see the viewpoint? He had a whole worldview of everything that took place in his life was from God. Why is that important? Because you won't be controlling the dangerous desires if you don't. In the middle of all of that, listen to this, Genesis 39, Pharaoh's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And you know what his reason is for it, not doing it? You know why? Because he believes in God's sovereignty. That's why. Do you know sexual purity is a result of believing in God's sovereignty? Here's what he says to Potiphar's wife. Your, master, your husband has put me over all of this and I have all this responsibility. And then he says this. And he, by the way, here's the main reason Joseph says to her. And how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Everything for him was a God issue. Everything. Because even in the midst of being a slave in Potiphar's house, he saw God was in it. And he was still faithful to him, still serving him, still loving him. See, is that you? See, are you controlled by your emotions because you want something so bad? 
Because when you do, you become cold and you get callous and you become self-centered. For Joseph, keeping God at the forefront, he became God-centered. How God-centered? Watch this. He didn't just mistreat his brother a little bit and let it go. He didn't say, well, I can't really do anything bad to you, but I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. you got to go back to Israel. I hope you make it in the famine. No. Here's the words. He, listen, he says to his brothers, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be distressed. Now, you'd think he'd be the one angry. He's not worried about him. He's worried about them. Do you see that? And then he says this. I'm not going to give you the cold shoulder. He says, I want you and your children near to me. So I'm not just going to avoid you. Be close to me. We're going to be really close buddies. We're going to be brothers and family. And then he says, I'm going to provide for you and your children, and I'm going to do it for a long time. Now, see, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, you did this to me. Now I'm in the position to power over you. Now I'm going to get in God's place, and I'm going to be the judge and jury, and see, this is what I'm going to do. And, and you say, well, okay, I won't do any of those bad things, but they're going to know I'm upset. That isn't how Joseph was. Not when you believe in God's sovereignty, he had the ability not to do bad things to them or say bad things to them. But on top of that, he did good things and said good things to them. See, they deserved all of this. He gave them none of it. Instead, he gave them as if they never did it. Can you do that? Do you have the perspective to be able to do that? Now, see, his brothers thought, well, okay, that's really great. But that's only because dad's still alive. Fast forward again to chapter 50 and we're done. You know how old he is now? Chronologically, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is 56. Huh, my age. You know how many years have passed since he left his father's house? Almost 40 years. 40 years. And, and, and all those years, up until the last 13 or 14 or whatever it's been, he has had God at the center. God is sovereign. People are instrumental. My brothers did this. I recognize it. I know it. I felt it. But I'm keeping God at the center. So I've controlled the dangerous desires. And I haven't done, I've done really good to them. But all the years pass. All those years pass. And now their dad is dead. And can I tell you, you know what changes for Joseph now? Nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. His brothers are worried about it. They think that he's going to, now that he's going to really let them have it. Finally, that dad's gone. There's no more blocking it. You're going to let us have it. And Joseph, sovereign passage number three, says to them in chapter 50 in verse 19, the second use of our question. He says to his brothers, but Joseph said to them, do not fear. Now this little passage is bra bracketed with that. Do not fear, verse 19 and then he says it again in verse 21 because he wants to stop them from fearing. He is not that person. He is not the kind of person who says, you did this to me, now you're going to get it. That's not him. He says this, am I in the place of God? If I was unforgiving, if I was uncaring to you, and I didn't do the right things, you know what that would make me? An usurper to the throne. So it's not just a matter of spiritual maturity and I'm not really growing there enough yet and then someday I'll have that kind of forgiveness. No, you know what? Every time that you are unwilling to forgive and that you're unwilling to treat people like God has treated you, you know what he says? You're trying to sit on my throne. You're taking my place. Joseph would not be right like Rachel. He was willing to win on the outside but it first came because he had to win on the inside. 
You know how he could treat his brothers like that and win on the outside? Because he was different on the inside. He had God at the center of the inside of his life. No grudges, no bitterness, no unforgiving spirit, no revenge, no paybacks, no cold shoulder. It wasn't say, hey, it's like some people, hey, you did this to me as your friend, I'm no longer your friend. You did this to me, I'm no longer your wife. You did this to me, I'm no longer in your church. That's how people are. They really are. They've been offended, they've been hurt, and it's true that they have. There's no trusting in divine sovereignty. It's all about human instrumentality. And Joseph says in his profound statement, you meant it, now watch, same verb, you meant it for evil. He didn't say, and God used it for good. That is not sovereignty. That is reaction. What he said, same verb, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Your purpose was trumped by God's purpose. Do you see every circumstance like that, every person in your life, everything that's gone wrong in your life, every person who has wronged you. If you don't, you will hold grudges. You will cancel people. You will cold shoulder people. You will take revenge. You will be hateful, and you will rot on the inside. You will. You'll want them to fear. You want them to know that you don't care anymore, and you're not gonna speak kindly to their heart. You're gonna speak rudely and you want it to get down deep in them because what you're going to get is what you think you deserve, everything that you want back. He was able to love his brothers in word and in action. He was able to do that. The question is, can you? Are you in the place of God tonight? Are you wrestling with the wrong people? Are you winning on the outside while you're losing on the inside? Maybe tonight as we close, you can pray this. God, tonight I need to start staying in my lane. Tonight I need to know my place. And my place is you're here, I'm here. You're sovereign and you're God and I am not. Let's pray. Father, help us. Such a vital truth such an important principle. Divine sovereignty is always over human instrumentality. If we don't get that down, it's going to wreck us on the inside, and it's only a matter of time that it'll wreck things on the outside. And there may be some here tonight who are listening, and they've experienced that. They are experiencing that because of their responses. When they were powerless or when they were powerful, God, help us, help us to say, God, it's your place to be in charge, not mine. Help us to have that that level of yieldedness and submissiveness to your divine authority, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.